Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I'm not a fan. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and we've had this conversation before. Oh, have we, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) We certainly have. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of post-structural feminism and Tolman's paradox. Today, we'll be talking about The Edge of Tomorrow, available for purchase or rental on most streaming services. Dan, you got it on Amazon. I got it on Apple. Oh, interesting. There's a variety of choices out there. Now, I'm curious, because like this is a legitimate question. The nice thing about buying it on Amazon is that it also has like the trivia stuff that's associated with it. So that's that's a, that's true. I just like the way the Apple interface goes. It's um, Totally get it. I grew up on it. It's familiar. <laughs> In the next few weeks, we are going to be talking about Strange New Worlds, the show. We will not be talking about... Strange Any particular strange in, new world, in, yeah. you know. Right. Although, if anyone wants to fund us to go to a strange new world to talk about <laughs> it, that would be amusing. But yeah. That is not our mission, however. No, it is not. Yeah. No. We yeah. will be talking about Station Eleven and the original Jurassic Park, kind of in a nod to the probably very bad <laughs> Jurassic Park that will be coming out this summer with the lesser Chris. The worst yes. of the Chris's, I think, is everyone agrees at this mm-hmm. point. That he's the worst, Chris. But also Jeff Goldblum, to be fair. So, but yeah. Jeff Goldblum and I, one of the reasons I wanted to do the original Jurassic Park is he, the man does not age. Yeah. I, I am <laughs> looking forward to seeing him being the exact same age <laughs> in Jurassic Park. We are still figuring out the rest of our summer schedule. But Dan, we have a, a big idea. Yes. Well, of course, it's hot sci-fi summer yet again. And I think this hot sci-fi summer will be defined by the 80s. At which point, I would like to apologize to Anna because (laughs) multiple times we have talked about how we're going to be doing Thor, Love, and Thunder and that the defining thing about the trailer is, of course, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses, which I kept insisting was a 1990s track, and I was wrong. The people of the Discord have informed me that it is, in fact, a late 80s track. I hereby apologize to all of our patrons, but particularly Anna, for continually... (laughs) Correcting her into a mistake. So that is that is on me. It's a metaphor, Dan. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> but we will also be doing, we're definitely going to be doing Highlander. Uh, I think I want to do Big Trouble in Little China. We will take other suggestions of awesome We only really 80s. need one or two more. Yeah, Maybe exactly. only yeah. one more. I right. think we should do Terminator. Oh. Oh, yeah. It's hard I think to we're, no we're hitting all the highlights that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know? right. And Terminator, yeah, it's a really good film. Yes. So we are still figuring things out as far Mm -hmm. as our schedule goes. You should feel free to hop on our Patreon page. And there's a few things you can do there. You can write on the blog post to make suggestions. Mm -hmm. And what else, Dan? What else can they do on that page? You know, you could choose to become a patron. Or even, in the spirit of Edge of Tomorrow, just repeatedly become a patron. (laughs) You know, and like ramp up the access that you have and, you know, become an even better patron. And, you know, another great way to support the show and which costs you absolutely nothing, uh, is to rate and review the show and tell your friends and neighbors. And I always like to remind people, as Dan mentioned, did you mention the Discord? Because that is where the I, corrections I came up. I briefly referenced the Discord. Yes, yes, you referenced the Discord. That is that is Dan's relationship to the Discord. It's <laughs> <laughs> a brief reference. But the Discord. But I do a, poke in every once in a while. You do. The yeah. Discord is a kind of a Slack channel type thing, if you're unfamiliar with it. Mm-hmm. It is a very cozy little community right now, a very good mm-hmm. reflection of the show, I think. Yes, A I very diverse group of people and diverse interests, not just science fiction. And I think it's one of the highlights of becoming a patron. Right. Be and they all, despite their disparate backgrounds and experiences and, and worldviews, unite to occasionally make fun of me, which I do appreciate. Yes. <laughs> we are thinking of starting a Dan channel. It would be devoted to jokes, information, and gossip, (laughs) and theories, because there is a current theory that Dan is just an artificial moon. Right, that's correct. Yes, that I actually that that Moonfall actually revealed the the secret behind me, which is that I'm a I am a megastructure. Which (laughs) well, actually, you certainly are a megastructure, (laughs) Dan. I'm trying to cut down on my eating. On okay, (laughs) COVID didn't. You know, we all. COVID puffed us all up. That's true. Dan, but why are we talking about Edge of Tomorrow? Right. So actually, we should apologize to our patrons because I think we had not mentioned that we were going to be doing this. In fact, we were supposed to be doing Strange New Worlds this week. But in honor of Memorial Day and in honor of Tom Cruise doing his part for Memorial Day by suiting up for combat again in Top Gun Maverick, 
it seemed appropriate to do a Tom Cruise sci-fi war film, a genre that we have not intentionally avoided, and yet here we are. We have never covered it. So let's take that highway to the danger zone (laughs) and put that song on repeat is all I got to say. Well, Dan, I was really happy when you suggested this because I somehow missed it. I remember (laughs) it being in theaters and thinking Mm -hmm. I should go see that. That's big and dumb. I like big and dumb. But I, I somehow missed it. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad I've seen it. It is oh, a very enjoyable movie. I, yes. you know, ate popcorn compulsively during the entire thing, <laughs> which is a little bit because I love popcorn, a little bit because it was like a movie going experience, really. It yes. was like, it yeah. was that kind of movie. It know? is. And I, I will say, this probably is a better movie if you watch it on the big screen. Yeah. There are, particularly, almost all of the film probably looks better on the big screen than it does on the small screen. Yeah. Dan, we have a section called Chekhov's What's It? Mm-hmm. Where we talk about the something that was introduced early in the film that you kind of know is going to come back later. <laughs> yes. What is it for you, Dan? For me, it is Bill Paxton, who plays Sergeant Farrell. <laughs> he comes back several times. <laughs> he recurs. He is, a, he is literally a recurring character in this film. And what is impressive to me is that there are a lot of supporting characters in this film. Most of them barely make an impression. What is intriguing to me about Bill Paxton's character is that literally... I think 90% of the screen time he has is having the same conversation over and over and over. Like literally the same dialogue. Literally the same dialogue. You know, mild variations as Tom Cruise is sort of reliving this day over and over and over again. And yet he is like, you're transfixed by him. It's it's just. Well, he's, he's just very good. It's, he's yeah. very magnetic. And it, it, it's almost like you, you want to have someone at a theater school teach this. Yeah. Because talk about doing alternate line reads right exactly. <laughs> yes he does let me put it this way the way to put this is bill paxton leverages this role he is not given a ton to work with. he's given some to work with in the script but he takes that and just spins this confection that you cannot help but watch every and he time. gives alternate line reads like that's yeah. one of the amazing things about the role right. is that he's yeah. literally saying the same words in every mm-hmm. every scene but mm-hmm. it's with different emphasis and different reaction yeah, yeah. It somehow works, and I agree. I wish that more people had more character. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sad because aliens, they mm-hmm. do another brief sketch of the platoon. But it's know? so much better done. It's so much better done. Like, agreed. Like, you know, we meet that troop, and it takes, this is what, maybe 10, 15 minutes tops, and we know who they are. And you know who else is in that platoon. I do know. It's, in fact, Bill Paxton. <laughs> What I can, actually, what I did keep thinking about in watching this film, I, I feel sorry because I believe Bill Paxton passed away almost pretty soon after yeah. uh, filming this, is that, you know, I think he and Tom Cruise are roughly the same age. And certainly mm-hmm. when you go back to like in 1986, Tom Cruise is in Top Gun, Bill Paxton is in Aliens. They seem like roughly the same age. In this film, Bill Paxton, unfortunately, seems about 15 to 20 years <laughs> older than Tom Cruise. There's just no other way to put it. But it, it is... I, I almost want to go back and watch Aliens again, maybe. It's like comfort viewing. Because it is such an interesting contrast in the efficiency in which they introduce yeah. a bunch of different characters, some of whom have barely any screen time. And yet are indelible. And yet are indelible and all very different. And then there's this cast of characters, which we will not talk about again. Maybe there's no one reason to keep well, talking we'll talk about, about them a little right bit, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is that it's clear that they try and give them each an individual characteristic, but it's mostly like one of them is British. Like <laughs> Sort of? It's a little weird. Some of them are. Like, it's, it's a little strange. But, Otto, what was your Chekhov's What's It? It's that thing that uh, Cruz stabs himself with. Oh, the transponder. I transponder. believe it's called the transponder. Chekhov's yeah. transponder. I'm yes. being kind of literal about this. It's a very <laughs> check because it, it is literally they say they they have this thing mm-hmm. that looks like a bunch of needles yeah. Yeah, to yeah. be injected in something. Mm-hmm. And there's this tiny bit of dialogue about that doesn't work. Put it away. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess that's going to come up later because <laughs> yep. you, you, yeah. you don't introduce a piece of technology, mm-hmm. talk about it not working, and then just put it to and the side. And then just never, <laughs> and then like only in a Simpsons version of this, like that doesn't work. And we never saw it again. <laughs> never you know, saw that, it again. Yeah. But speaking of seeing things again. Yeah. Dan. Anna. Uh, so, yes, let's let's get to the story behind the story. So this is a 2010s Tom Cruise production. 
I am assuming Christopher McQuarrie was involved in some way because he seems to be involved at this point in everything that Tom Cruise does. Am I right? You are correct. Oh, good. And I want to talk a little bit about the time loop that is the script development for this movie. <laughs> but first, Excellent. Dan, what is the title of this movie? So I believe it's Edge of Tomorrow. It is not. Oh. It is Live, Die, Repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, I saw that on the poster, but I don't recall that being the... Oh, it was the tagline. I thought and, that was the tagline. And I it thought, got yeah. retitled for digital release. I oh, actually was trying to find it on Amazon or whatever, mm-hmm. and I kept on pulling up Live, Die, Repeat. I repeat. Oh, and you And I was like, it, yeah. oh, this must be one of those, like, knockoff, and they right, paid right. To, to put the placement in the search mm-hmm. engine. But no, that is the name of the movie. And I'll just tell you right now, there has been talk of a sequel, and that sequel is entitled... Live, die, repeat, repeat. Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just... That sentence might suggest... You know what? Like, I think my inner Adorno is coming out and saying, he was right! <laughs> it's true. That yeah, is so I, unoriginal. Live, die, repeat, repeat? Come on! Yep. So I, I, At least level this up This is not going to be yeah. that interesting, but it is much like my favorite... Mr. Showbits, this is a case of repeat until funny. <laughs> this movie started out as a manga novel called All You Need Is Kill, published in 2009. It mm. was optioned almost immediately. It was decided by the person that optioned in, a producer named Erwin Stoff, that he was going to get a spec script rather than just pitch it. He got Dante Harper to write the spec script. And that's the guy that wrote Alien Covenant. And it was mm-hmm. kicked around Hollywood. It was voted the best unproduced action movie. Ah, uh, yes. At the always Blacklist. a distinguished honor. Yes. Yeah, what well, it is actually. It's always no, no. Like, it is it, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Warner Brothers bought it. They hired Joby Harold to Who do a rewrite. Wrote John Wick three, I believe. Right? Yep. Yes. Okay. Then they hired Roberto Orci and Alex Kurtzman to do a rewrite. Those are the Star Trek guys, right? Like they are, point. and also yeah, yeah. a Mission Impossible movie, which ah, there you go. maybe enough. intended yes. to like comfort Tom Cruise, right? <laughs> so then Doug Liman was hired to direct. Great. Okay. He throws out most of the script. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. That, and he yeah. gives it to the Butterworth brothers, who Okay, have... now I think you're just making shit up. Let's be clear about this. <laughs> Barely have any screenplays to their name, by the way. I was gonna. I've been trying to like, you know, give some place people in context. But so right. he gives it to Jez and John Henry Butterworth, real people. Okay. Okay. They do a rewrite. Mm-hmm. And then, then <laughs> it goes yes? to Simon. It goes to Simon Kinberg, the guy the from the X Men films. Is, yep, okay, that's yeah, right. Yeah. All right. And then we're not done. <laughs> no, they're about to shoot. It's eight mm-hmm. weeks before shooting, and. McQuarrie comes on board. Enter McQuarrie. He Got it. and Tom Cruise were working on the Jack Reacher movie. That's how uh, yes. they became connected. Mm-hmm. Cruise got a hold of the script. Mm-hmm. There's more. Re- I mean, I don't. I'm trying to make this repeat until funny, but it's actually just kind of. <laughs> it's just weird. Like I have never seen this. Like I do a lot of story behind the story for this. This is the most rewrites I've ever seen. I was gonna like, say like ever. I, we've we've talked about other classics that like had implausible origin stories because there were right. multiple screenwriters but this is easily the most i i can recall this is nuts so yeah. cruz gets a hold of it and he mm-hmm. says he wants it to be more comedic it's too dark <laughs> okay so mcquarrie makes it more comedic he swear to god this was said in interviews mcquarrie and cruz base all the deaths that tom cruise has on wiley e coyote yeah fair enough okay right yeah. okay yeah they actually started principal photography for this movie with a no ending. Just like Casablanca. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again. But eventually came up with the ending that exists, which is, you know, I mean. It's fine. Ta- the thing is, we'll get time travel it. movies yeah. is like, it's hard to come up with a satisfying ending for most yeah. time travel movies. So yeah. we'll talk about it. But I will also say that it did get very good reviews. Mm-hmm. It has a 91% from critics. Huge success at the box office. Budget of $178 million. It grossed uh, $370 million. And the last thing I want to say mm-hmm. is I get a lot of this stuff from Wikipedia. Yes. No, you, know, you would guess that. I'm not right. ashamed. No, there's no shame in this. Yeah. Right. At the end of every Wikipedia entry for a movie, there's always like, you might also want to see, 
you know, ah. this movie or this thing is also cited in these other things. Right, right. This is what is at the end of this movie. <laughs> a list of films based on manga. That makes sense. Totally fair. Right? Yeah. A list of films featuring time loops. That's also something you might be interested Absolutely in. Absolutely appropriate, yeah. And then it's a list of films featuring powered exoskeletons. <laughs> which is just super specific. I was saying, are there any beyond aliens in this? I mean, I'm sure there are. I clearly, did look. But, there's yeah. a list. It's more okay. than two. Okay, good. To then know. there's a list of science fiction films from the 2010s. Okay, good. And then it is a variation on Dan. You do military history. Have you heard of this book? No. <laughs> <laughs> the Defense of Duffer's Drift, yes. a 1904 short book with a similar premise. I will save this for the newsletter, but basically this was a World War One, like, what is it called? It's an, a structural, it's an instructional manual for different kinds of warfare. Okay, and but I'm just going to point out this was written prior to World War One, 1904. Oh, sorry, was, yes, was sorry. Yeah, I guess World it's War actually, I, so. was it like, sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was used in World War One. Okay, fair uh, fair. Although, yeah. since it is about time travel. Who knows, right? That, yes. Okay. <laughs> totally fair. Totally Maybe fair. the author went to World War One, <laughs> saw how bad it was going, decided the troops yeah. needed to learn these different battle strategies. Yeah. But it's it is it is the same plot, like yeah. because he keeps waking up on the same day. Duffer. Oh wow. Or whatever his name is keeps yeah. waking up on the same day and trying different tactics. Hmm. Dan the. Most recent iteration of this was written by the Rand Corporation <laughs> in 2009, I think. And you can find it online. Okay, our conspiracy theorist listeners are going to go <laughs> off the charts as a result of this. This is great. I love it. Like It's been I rewritten it. because I guess this idea that you fight the same battle over and over, but there's some kind of narrative attached to it. There you go. I don't know. Anyway, I found that interesting. That is interesting. And I do kind of want to read the story now. I skimmed it. Yeah. It is very much intended for people who are going to go into battle. Like, it's oh, very, that's like... unfortunate. Okay. It's like... A, I imagine it... It's sort of like... Well, the original East is a little bit like a film strip sort of feel to it. Like, the, <laughs> now we're going <laughs> into battle. Everyone get your hat on straight. You know, like, <laughs> sort of... Like, if you were watching in health class or something. <laughs> only it's about war. Not <laughs> Oh, no, the slide is now misaligned yeah. with the with the audio, <laughs> which I, I, I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry, you're just mentioning film strips. I always, like, was amazed at that iron law that it didn't matter how obvious it was. Inevitably, at some point, whoever was running the film strip would get misaligned with the audio. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I we didn't do a lot of film strips. I actually okay. do remember them. The people listening to this podcast are a lot of Gen Xers, so they're going to remember them. Too. Yeah, they're going to like film strips. This is, this is, yeah. we, we're catering to our base here. All right, but we should move on. We, we, we should. For some reason, we've already been talking about this movie for 20 minutes. <laughs> so keep, let's keep going. All right, let's speed on to the plot. Let's go to Act 1. Jerry Maguire goes to war. An asteroid containing a species known as the Mimics crash lands in Europe and starts to overrun the continent. The United Defense Forces fall back to the UK, but then win a victory at Verdun, led by Sergeant Rita Vertasky, a.k.a. the Angel of Verdun, a.k.a. Full Metal Bitch. This encourages the UDF to launch an invasion of the continent, codenamed in no way ominously, Operation <laughs> Downfall. Meet Major William Cage, a U.S. Army public affairs officer who has been the hype man for the war, praising the funky new equipment that ostensibly enables even an untrained soldier to kill mimics. Cage meets General Brigham, who is in charge of the UDF, in London the day before the invasion. Brigham must have seen the Americanization of Emily because he wants Cage to be in on the first wave as a PR ploy. He all, by the way, expects minimal resistance on the beaches, so it's not terrifically life-threatening. Cage does not like this plan and tries to blackmail Brigham. He then tries to flee HQ, but is knocked unconscious. Okay, Dan, few yes. things. Yeah. I had not seen this movie, so I thought there were a few different ways it could go okay. at this point. Yeah. Part of me thought maybe that new equipment actually sucks. And this is a story about <laughs> someone. It's really a story about the military industrial complex. Yes, yes. exactly, exactly. That is not what it's about. And the other thing that occurred to me is you're in the general's position. Do you want a reluctant hype man as your propagandist? Like, as soon as he says no, I think I'd be like, all right, I guess, you know, because you don't want someone who's just going to be 
terrified and also doesn't want to be there. Yeah, that part was not terrifically plausible. I do agree with that. Although, I I have to say, I went along for the ride. Have you seen the Americanization of Emily, by the way? I have not. Okay, this is a non-sci-fi movie, but it might be the most cynical World War II movie ever made with James Garner and Julie Andrews. It is a lovely film involving a cynical aide who, for some reason, is dispatched to Omaha Beach. It's quite something. But it has to consciously echo that, because otherwise there would be no way you would do that. But I grant you, that part of the plot does not entirely track. But let's I mean, get on to the rest he, of the plot. He should still get in trouble, perhaps. But yeah. I think... And oh, I guess, he does get into trouble. Yeah, I, mean, no, I, think, I, mean, I, okay. I think the answer is, is what happens is by him doing what he does... He's still going to be on the first wave. There's just no one filming nope. him now. Right. That's that's yeah. true. That's true. That, so that part made sense. What yeah. I agree with you is that if he had expressed any sort of recalcitrance, it, it is questionable why the general would have said, no, no, you're the one who's got to do this as opposed to, I don't know, just focusing on an eager grunt. which would have Or just putting a fucking sense. GoPro yeah. on somebody's head, right. you there know? You like, yeah. anyway. Anywho... Cage wakes up in Heathrow, FOB, Forward Operating Base, and learns from Master Sergeant Farrell that he has been stripped of rank, branded a deserter, and reassigned to the Misfit J Squad (laughs) to go in on the first wave. Shockingly, downfall proves to be a disaster, as the mimics seem to be almost anticipating their invasion. As J-Squad dies, Cage uses a Claymore mine to kill a large blue mimic, but is mortally wounded by the explosion. As he's dying... He's covered in the alien's blood, and so, therefore, Cage jolts awake again to find himself back at Heathrow 24 hours earlier, feeling an awful lot like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. Anna, what is it about Tom Cruise that makes his best performances the ones in which he plays a total weasel? It's tempting to say that maybe those are the ones that require the least acting for him. Oh, that's mean. But that's mean. That and I don't mean. I don't think that's even true yeah. necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's because his asshole roles are in some ways more subtle than his good guy roles. You know what it is? I so a couple things. I think it's because when he tries to be a good guy, part of I think Tom Cruise is actually an underrated actor in some Yeah, ways. I think he's but, a good actor. But when it comes to him trying to be good, there's almost like a, a tick he does where it's like he's trying to make the effort and he's trying to make the audience see that he's making the effort. Um, yeah. And he does that in like Jerry Maguire, for example, when he gives that climactic speech. It's like he's clearly like, can you see me doing this? You know, mm-hmm. whereas when he's a weasel. There's less effort, effort involved. And it's yeah, not because it's he's effortless. an asshole. But, right, it's not because, it, but, but it's because he knows that that's the best way to, to, to appear being a weasel, I think. But like, yeah, like whether it's, you know, Jerry Maguire in this, at the start or Collateral, or mm. Magnolia. He is fantastic in these, in these roles, and it's fascinating. I would say, in Magnolia, I think that's one of the best performances of, like... Yeah. In in modern film. I mean, that wow. says a lot, okay. but it's yeah. a, it is an astounding performance. Yeah. But, like, and that's another example where he... Again, to be fair, he's never always the asshole, except in Collateral, right. I guess. But by and large, you know, he always starts off being the weasel and then slowly becomes a good person. And you can and, see, as he becomes a good person, he's, like almost like shaking with the effort to try to make that you're right i mean it's not that it's not believable that he becomes a good person it's just it feels it does feel different yeah Yeah. i did enjoy this movie in part because tom cruise is also he's a good comedic actor doesn't always get a chance oh yeah he's a very good comedic actor yeah to do that and i mean there's always a comedy in his action films but this you know i think i kind of rolled my eyes when i heard the wiley e coyote you know comparison but that's it actually works. Yes, it does. And most of him dying are comedic scenes. Most <laughs> yes. scenes of him dying are comedic scenes. And, they and are he has to way. play them as comedy. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he's very good. Yes. <laughs> no, that this it, in some ways it's the loosest part of the film weirdly and like it's it's the best part. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's go to act 2. You can't handle the truth about time. So Cage keeps reliving the events of the day, dying and resetting. He tries to convince J-Squad what is happening to him, but they just tape his mouth shut. After a couple of iterations of this, he saves Vertasky on the beach, demonstrating that he knows what is happening. Vertasky recognizes what Cage is doing and tells him to find her when he resets the day. Cage does this, and Vertasky explains that this had happened to her in the past. She takes him to see Dr. Carter, a disgraced mimic expert, and they exposit what is happening. (laughs) 
So, apparently the Mimics operate as a single consciousness, with millions of drones, a few Alphas, and a single Omega that runs the show. The Alphas function sort of like nerve endings. When an Alpha is killed, the Omega can reset the day and learn from its mistakes. However, when the Alpha bled onto Cage, it transferred the resetting power to him, just as it had done with Rita previously. So, every time Cage dies, he resets the day and can learn from it. The Omega will try to find him, however, leading to visions of where the Omega is. Vertasky wants him to keep resetting until he sees where the Omega is, and then they can kill it. Cage will keep this power until the Omega kills him, or if, when injured, he gets a blood transfusion. Anna, did I get all that exposition correct? I think so. The part that I wasn't sure about was... Mm -hmm. So, but it's different when the Omega kills him and he dies? I would assume so, but like, I, actually, you're right. That is technically not in the film, but I'm assuming that the point is is that the Omega, if they ever get, if it ever gets its hands on Cage, can actually destroy him. But you're right. That's assumed by me. Yeah, I have some questions about the time travel stuff. We will not... Yeah indulge them here right. it would it would take us <laughs> the one thing i would add with, right the one thing i would add is that apparently what happened to rita is the reason that she was so good at verdun was that she had the same yeah experience. i wish they'd made that more clear because I, I thought it would be a funny little you know turn mm -hmm. if she wasn't actually a newbie right because in the in the hype that he is doing for mm -hmm. her yeah. It's always like, it was her first battle. She, which is she was barely trained. Right, which is correct from her his perspective since a right. court, you know. But it would be funny for it to turn out mm -hmm. <laughs> that she had the same situation, right? Which well, I she guess did have, we, no, we, she did no, have no, the same no, situation. Which we can assume, but it never it's never made even a little bit, like the film never nods at that. It's sort of rushed through. I, I think basically what Rita says is that she had the exact same experience, which right, is why right. she got really good at being a soldier. But then the question was, well, then why did we win at Verdun? Once he, she lost her power, and her explanation is they wanted us to win, so we would launch this invasion, yeah, it's, so then they would kill us. Yeah, but they never... <laughs> they rushed through it once, and it was not entirely clear. Right, because it would have yeah. been more... I think it would have been cool, like, just yeah. to, for Cage to realize that he had been hyping this woman who got to train over and over and over. Right, that's... Oh, so you're right. In other words, that he had realized that even, even the, you know assholery that he had done in terms of like prompting this was at least based at least as far as he was concerned on the truth when in fact it turns out it wasn't yes that's that would fair. be that would have been a little turn that i would have appreciated okay that's, let's I move think on Vertasky trains cage how to fight and what follows is an excellent montage of cage dying in myriad ways through training exercises eventually cage does have a vision of the omega being holed up in a german dam and now that Cage has envisioned where the Omega is, Vertasky and Cage then try to get the dam during the invasion. This leads to yet another excellent montage of Vertasky and Cage dying on the beach and inland, making minimal progress. Anna, what is it about seeing a montage <laughs> of Tom Cruise dying that makes it so satisfying? Because it is undeniably satisfying, and any review of this film has commented on it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of it is that we just all, we, this is a, sort of repeating what we said before, but yeah. number one, Cruz is clearly having a good time. Yeah. There is a lightness to this part of the movie right. that keeps it from being oppressive, you know, mm -hmm. that keeps it from being depressing. Like in the moment, it, it should actually be really depressing to them, right? right. Like to keep having to die. Mm -hmm. But in a weird way, because there are zero stakes, right? <laughs> It actually gets funnier because comedy usually needs stakes. Yeah. But, and so it's very broad physical comedy. No, it's true. And, and so, what was the funniest death for you? Because, like, I know what it was for me. Well, I actually liked it every time he was like, no, don't, no, it's just a flesh wound. You know? Right. No, that was the funniest <laughs> one is where he's like, I think he said, no, 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 I just broke my leg this time. It's fine. It's all right, fine. And, like, he surrenders <laughs> at the end and Rita just kills him. So, like, that was. That, yes, and, and I think you're right, it's a lightness. And I think the other aspect of this, and this is the meta aspect of this film, is that, you know, Tom Cruise is one of the biggest stars in the world. He yes. is someone who is, I believe, over 60 and looks 40 at best. Yeah. You know, and so there's a lot of reasons for many people to despise him. And this is the one of those rare moments where I think Tom Cruise is, like, willing to, to have fun with himself. Yeah. And so everyone gets to enjoy Tom Cruise dying. It's like, you know, that, that's the way it works. I will just also add that Scientologists believe in reincarnation. So <laughs> not a well, big deal go. for him. Perhaps. So the stakes are low for him, too. That's fair. Yes. All right. Let's move on to Act 3. I feel the need, the need to bleed. 
Getting bored with the death dynamic, Cage decides, fuck it, deserts, and heads to London during one <laughs> I of these say, I, This confused me at first. Yes? Like, because I thought it was, like, a flashback or something, right? Because, like, uh, but... They're all flashbacks in some ways, yeah, but yeah, yes, and, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. But actually, I thought it was, I mean, it's not played for laughs, but then when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, like, yeah. that is something you could do. And right. Good idea. At, yes. <laughs> He's in London in a pub drinking and realizes that not only is the invasion going to fail, but the mimics will actually invade the UK at the same time. With renewed Tom Cruise-like determination, Cage and Vertasky keep heading for the dam. The problem is that every time Vertasky dies. So, and finally, Cage fesses this up to Vertasky, and Vertasky nonetheless gets into the helicopter and tries to get there anyway. Cage finally decides not to bother Rita and head to the dam on his own. He succeeds, but finds no Omega there. It's a trap. Instead, an Alpha tries to get his blood, but Cage drowns himself before that happens. I would add that was the one death that I actually found horrifying. Because, like, you know, to drown mm-hmm. has got to be the, one of the worst forms. It is. Um, it and is. It, was, it, it was the one time, like, in all of this where it was like, oh, God, that was... An Not that we can know for sure, I guess, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it does seem like one of the worst ways to yes. die. Yes. I just want to point out yep. that I think she had a point that he should just keep going she was completely right and <laughs> yes no, no no let's be very clear i mean one one of the things about this film is is if he had a chance to kill the monster right yeah like yeah. it one death versus oh yeah you know, this is calculus people make all the time this is maybe another indication he's not a soldier i guess well let me put it this way i when we talk about rita training cage rita's training cage in two ways one spoken and one unspoken the spoken way in which he's training she's training cage is to teach him how to fight. But really what Rita is also teaching Cage is why they're fighting and mm-hmm. what it means to actually try to win. So, yeah, I mean, if Cage had actually been rational, I, the way to think about it was, well, okay, I've got to go on my own. If I fail, we just reset and it'll yeah, be fine. That's, I mean, and if I win, the war wins. But I, I will say this is, and again, I will give Tom Cruise credit as an actor. What I think was happening, and this is actually relatively speaking subtle as this film goes, is that it's not that Cage didn't want Rita to die. I mean, I think he recognized the, the logic of what I said. I think it was that seeing Rita die over and over and over and over and over again was, in fact, beginning to weigh on him, I guess would be the way to put it. I agree. I mean, I, my nitpick is less about the movie logic mm-hmm. than it is about, like, the character's logic. Yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. what we're, you know, it, it, which yeah. is to say, I, you're, I think you're exactly right. Like, within the framework of the movie, the movie recognizes that she's right. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise's character reluctantly recognizes that she's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she knows she's right. And it is an interesting scene. Mm-hmm. We will talk more later about the degree to which there's a romance yeah, in this yeah. movie. I appreciated that it seemed real platonic at this point. Yes, I agree. And again, I'm beginning to appreciate this more with more sci- like loud sci-fi films that we watch. The other nice thing about that scene is that it was quiet. It was yeah. a lovely little interlude, you know, and then revs up again. It was almost like listening to a piece of concert music where like there's just a brief lull and then it just supercharges and that lull made it nicer. And there's a trope that you referred to in your introduction about have we had this conversation before yeah. that occurs throughout the movie. Yeah. And there's a few different places where he's trying to hide the fact yes, that they've had, they've this, had conversation this conversation before. <laughs> that, was a, that was a clever trope. Um, yeah. Or that was, that was a clever moment in the script where when Rita realizes, wait, we're having this lovely moment and he knows we're having this lovely moment or he knows this is going to happen. That was also kind of the most Groundhog Day moment, yeah, I thought, yeah, because yeah. this is, it's the place, and no shade on the movie about this, but it's the place where you see the character growing and taking advantage of his situation right. to become a better person. Yes. Rather than just do whatever he wants, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, he and Rita deduce that the visions that they were experiencing are actually fake-outs trying to lure Cage to be captured. So, the only way to locate the Omega now is to use one of Carter's prototype gizmos on Cage. The trouble is that the UDF has locked the transponder up in a safe in Whitehall for super vague reasons. So, Cage and Vertasky's new mission is to infiltrate UDF HQ at Whitehall and get General Brigham to give it to them. 
After many tries, they finally succeed and use the gizmo on Cage, and he sees the Omega holed up in a garage underneath the Louvre, and as any alien, you know, visiting the planet would go. On a, some sci-fi films are very detailed and grounded in their world building. Others are a bit more hand-wavy. And I don't think there's a right way or wrong way of doing it, but I do think it matters to be consistent. And the one thing I will, like, that keeps <laughs> nagging on me about Edge of Tomorrow is that it clearly tried to be grounded in some ways, but there's a lot of hand-waving in other places, yes? So there's one specific thing that bugged me. Yeah? Which is the way that Cage establishes his credibility to mm-hmm. people when he's right. like, I'm a time traveler, yeah, yeah, you know, is to tell them two ways, two, sort of two ways. One is to pre-react mm-hmm. to things that they're going to do. Okay, cool. That makes the sense. The other thing is to tell them details about them yeah. themselves. But like in the scene with the general. Right. There's the part where he's like, your secretary's going to come in, yeah. tell her, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then he goes into like, and you've assigned her son to Australia where he won't get hurt, you know? And I'm like, wait a minute, how would that, wait, did that come up in a previous conversation? No, that wouldn't have come up in a previous conversation. Like, did he use one of his days to research the general secretary? Right. And then there's another scene where he tells one of the J Troop people, your second grade teacher's name and like some <laughs> other bit of detail. How did that come up? Like... Did, did he use another day to, like, go back and research the, this member of J-Troop's childhood? You know, it, this might be where Groundhog Day did a better job with this premise than Edge of Tomorrow. Because with Groundhog Day, you see these similar things where, like, he knows what's going to happen and occasionally, like, you know, saves the kid right. falling from the tree. But also he winds up knowing everything about everyone Right, in but town. you see him discovering those things. Right, and that's the th- problem. The problem with this film is is that clearly, and, and I get why they did this, is that you don't see a lot of the loops that he experiences. Yeah, fine, yeah. And, and I can imagine that he might have picked up some of this stuff, but part of the problem, which we talked about, is that J Troop is so unmemorable that we don't believe that he would remember them is, I think, one of the issues. Well, and also there's the one with the general secretary really bugged me because that, that would just never no come up. Like, yeah. <laughs> it would never come up that the general, like... Right, because who's going to say pull- that? <laughs> the secretary's not going to know. The general, who is a taciturn sort, is certainly not going to volunteer that information. Indeed, the best acting that Brendan Gleeson does in this entire film, it's not a large role, but the best acting he does is simply him staring at Cage whenever Cage says ridiculous shit to him. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like he's got this completely unblinking demeanor that makes it clear... I am not buying a word of what you're saying. It was very yeah. well done. Yeah. And it's just, it, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it the movie could have benefited from just a few. Another screenwriter? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You know, he just made me think there probably yeah. were scenes where this happened. Yeah, it could have been. Like, to be fair, like, th- there's so much stitching together. Like, one wonders if... Like, it is amazing. Engines, I mean, yeah. it is amazing that the movie turned out as well as it did. Right. Like, to be clear, we're nitpicking at this, but this is on the whole yeah. a pretty good film. Like, it's an eminently watchable film. Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah. we're definitely nitpicking. Yeah. It's just... And I also think that if I saw this in a theater, I might not have right. been as aware mm-hmm. of some of the flaws. Yeah. Because it just, you know, let it wash over me. Right. Although sometimes I can do both as as like with Batman. <laughs> yes. Or even Doctor Strange. Yes. Fair enough. All right. All right. Let's close with Act 4. Sometimes you just have to say, what the fuck? Let's crash the Louvre. <laughs> you are really like digging into some, <laughs> some deep cruise cuts. Here. I, I appreciate that. It just seemed appropriate. Yeah. Just when Cage discovers that they know where the Omega is, they get into a car accident and Cage is given a transfusion while in custody, which means that he has lost his power. And I would like to point out. Yep. This it's one of the things they make very clear is mm-hmm. that you need to kill yourself rather than get injured. Right. Right. And also yes. they become really good at killing you know, themselves, uh, optimizing the reset. Right. Rita, yeah. well, I, I would say it's slightly variable. Rita knows this cold. Yeah. And so, like, there's there's a previous loop where they manage to get the, the doohickey, but they aren't able to use it. The moment they realize they're surrounded, Rita responds by immediately killing Cage. Yeah. And that's not what happens in this time. She yeah. should have done that here. There like, you go. It would have, yeah. He would have eliminated the risk of him getting injured after having gained the intel. You know, you're right. And what's even more so is that now that I think about it, not only should she have killed him, the benefit of killing him was is that in the next iteration, they didn't have to do any of that. Yeah, exactly. No, because that 
exactly, exactly. He would have come back with the. He would have come back. Would have told Rita, "We've done this before." He's at the Louvre, it's, or the, he's you know, at the Louvre. At the Louvre. Let's, Let's go. just go. Yeah, you, you know what? You're actually right. That's a good point. <laughs> Excellent point. You're a better you. Rita, Anna. You know, Thank that's you. all I gotta say. Anywho. So, Cage has been given transfusion while in custody, which means that he has lost his power. Rita escapes and frees Cage. They realize the only way to stop Downfall from being a disaster is to attack the Louvre before it is launched. And here is also where the timeline gets a little exaggerated. I mean, no, I mean, not the timeline in terms of, like, they're on the right timeline, yeah. but this is not taking place within 24 hours, realistically. Depends on how long he was in, like, unconscious for. Anyway, the point is, they can't do it alone. So Cage uses his godlike knowledge of J-Squad, which, as Anna's pointed out, is somewhat dubious, to convince them into coming along. They fly a transport to Paris. <laughs> They're but all are... red shirts anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they fly a transport to Paris, but are shot down just short of the Louvre. The rest of J-Squad redshirt themselves <laughs> in a sacrifice for Cage and Vertaski to get to the Louvre. Once inside, Vertaski sacrifices herself to distract the Alpha guarding the Omega. Cage dives into the water where the Omega is, but is stabbed by the Alpha. But not before he pulls all the pins on the grenades and drops the belt in the Omega. As they both die, however, the Omega's blood gets into Cage. He then wakes up again, but this time several hours prior to all his previous loops. He's still a major, and his attack must have succeeded because the UDF had registered an energy surge from Paris, and now the Mimics have lost the will to fight. It looks like the UDF, the Russians, and the Chinese will be able to retake the European continent, and there will be no international relations problems after that, <laughs> I wondered, ever. I thought of you, of course, a few times when it showed like all the happy cooperation yes. uh, among the different nations, I know, knowing that's very realistic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Anna, in the last loop, in the attack on the Louvre, Rita kisses Cage. And as much as I am a fan of pretty people getting it on on screen, I wasn't completely sold on that decision. Do you think Cage and Rita get together in the new future? I hope not. Yeah. You know, like, it would have been, up until that point, it's actually pretty realistic that they're not in love, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think he, I will say, I think he's... He's he, smitten with he, her, I he, think would be Sure, one but yeah. like they actually don't have a lot of chemistry. No, they don't. Yeah. And it is believable that yeah. this is not going to be a consummated yes. affection. No, no, exactly. I, I, it's believable and, that Tom Cruise is smitten with her. It's also believable because of, of the way Emily Blunt plays that character that that is not going anywhere. And it would have been cool to have it not go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I Like agree. to just have it be like a major action film with no romance. Right. That the that the primary relationship is yeah. one where of respect. To be fair, there's barely a romance. There's literally one. Yeah, kiss yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, it. But, yeah, you know, yeah. But, I yeah. mean, it sort of just it it spoils doesn't totally spoil. But it, I remember I was like, ah, oh, really? You know? No, like, I think it would have been better without the kiss. I agree with you on that. I think it it was unnecessary, and yeah, I think it would have been better. I also it, want to say something about the ending, which is yes. As I mentioned, they started shooting the script without an ending. Or maybe, you know mm -hmm. what I should have said? They started shooting the script with about eight different endings. Probably, apparently, <laughs> yes. One from each iteration, right? <laughs> I want to know what the different endings are. They have, should have had a montage with all the endings. Yeah, because it yeah. is hard to end time travel. Right. You know, movies. So the one they went through, they, the one they went with, Macquarie described it or, or de described the, the way he made the choice to do that was that all comedies reset. In every in classical comedy, you end up at this in the situation that you had before. Like, yes, fair enough. And that's true. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. I almost don't want to nitpick because again, you paint yourself into a corner with the time travel right. narrative, yeah. right? So this is as good as any. Okay, fine. <laughs> it, it, I, the way I would describe it is this is again like a very good Marvel movie in that the first two thirds are really really good. And the final act is pro somewhat problematic. It's not bad. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a thing. Yeah, well, I was thinking, Dan. Yes, Anna? Is there IR in this movie? Anna, just listen. It's going to sound ridiculous at first, but the longer I talk, the more rational the IR is going to appear. <laughs> <laughs> So let's start with the ridiculous part, which is the global response to the mimic invasion. So there's lots of vague references in the early and ending stages of the film that there's some sort of global coalition involving Russia, China, and what is called the UDF, the United Defense Forces. 
So, like, I, my first question is, did NATO sue so that they would not get <laughs> mentioned in this film? Because, like, I don't understand why NATO would not specifically play a role. That's the obvious security alliance that would handle an invasion of Europe. It's literally pre-existing. I don't know why they kept saying UDF rather than NATO. That made no sense to me whatsoever. Well, okay, I'm just, yep. as the less studied okay. person here... Mm-hmm. UDF makes sense because it's a very quick way of saying the whole globe is here. Fair enough. Yes. Like, Except, like, it's not just NATO. Because if they threw NATO in, I think people would be like, oh, that's Europe. Right? But it was Europe. Like, they, it right. Was no, right. But the, no, no, no. We yeah. see very clearly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people of different color and different nationalities marching out together. Yeah. I guess, let me put it this way, part of the problem was the film was actually a little casual about this, because at times you thought that UDF was, like, the European coalition doing this, and, like, were the Russians and Chinese members of the UDF, or were they allied with the UDF? It didn't, you know, it oh, wasn't see, that, clear I to assume me. the reason they called it the UDF is that it's not NATO. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So and also, Russia and China. By the way, I, maybe the other reason they called or it... They U- do, or in this future, they're part of NATO. Who knows? Maybe part of the <laughs> reason... NATO becomes pointless. <laughs> Part of the reason they might have called it UDF is that because not even NATO has mixed units like J-Squad. Like, I kept thinking, in what universe do you have, like, British and U.S. soldiers, like, at the squad level? That does not happen. It's never happened. I don't know why they did did it. Did this come up with aliens? It came up in another movie. It was, oh, it was, um, yes, it was the Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill one, Event Horizon. It was Event Horizon. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, you're right. So in that sense, you know, that's a good Event Horizon reference. I like that. Now, the somewhat more interesting question is Vertasky's assertion, which she says during the exposition dump, that an enemy that knows the future can't lose. This certainly seems banal and obvious, because it's certainly true that an enemy that is completely, you know, sure about what the future is, is likely to win. And the classic example of this, by the way, is Israel launching a surprise offensive during the Six-Day War because they were fully aware that Egypt and Syria were going to attack them and so took them by surprise. And yet, there are so many instances in which actors with precise intel about future attacks had leaders who refused to believe or could not be bothered to respond to that knowledge. So in fact, it turns out an enemy that knows the future can lose. And there are plenty of examples of this. Indeed, there are recent examples of this. France and Germany, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, did not think that Russia was actually going to invade Ukraine. They thought it was all an exercise in coercive bargaining. Indeed, Germany was caught so by surprise that Germany's intelligence chief was caught in Kiev and had to be, like, specially airlifted out. Dan. Yes? I'm going to pick a nit. Okay. Pick away. Which is... You're describing a situation in which people refuse to believe they know the future. Yes. Which is different than knowing the future. Okay. That's if I told you mm-hmm. that, I don't know, I'm trying to think, like, uh, bats are going to invade your house. Let's use try to, to keep it and not a war metaphor. The hell did I do to you, Anna? Why are you giving me this nightmare scenario? No, right. So they're going to, Dan, they're going to. They're going to invade. And you're like, that's preposterous. I don't believe you. Yes. It's not the same as you knowing the future. You think you know the future. You think that bats will not invade. Right. Just saying. Let me put it this way. So, Because if you have certain knowledge of the future, Mm -hmm. I know there are lots of examples of people just fucking up and being Mm -hmm. warned. A pandemic, for instance, yeah. on the horizon. Oh, I yeah. think people talked about that at one point. Who would point. have thought that? Yes. But they think they, the problem is they think they know the future. The problem is given information about mm-hmm. the future, which we now know to be right because everything's played out the way that it played out, mm-hmm. they should have taken that advice. So, but they thought they knew the future. Right. Okay. Here's Here's the way I will parse this out, which is, there are two ways you can think about knowledge. You're making instance. a very good point about the fallibility of right. intelligence. But but part of but it... But I'm just saying you can't no, no, no. squish the time travel part in. I, but here's where I will squish the time travel. We often talk about knowledge being both observable and verifiable. Right. So observable knowledge means that someone can actually witness the knowledge and right. know what is happening. Verifiable means they can show it to others as undeniably true. Okay. And the problem with time travel, much like intelligence, is that in time travel in this instance is observable by Cage and Vertasky, but it is not verifiable. But Vertasky so is correct when she says 
this enemy mm-hmm. knows the future and it can't lose because this that enemy, is correct. Yes, the mimics don't are a just single have, consciousness. Are a single consciousness, right? And they have observed the future. That is fair. Yes, and I will simply point out that what Vertasky would also have to acknowledge is that an enemy that contains multiple independent decision makers. When dealing with this, it is entirely possible that the leader of the enemy might be told this information and refuse to believe it. I will point out a micro example that shows the difference here. Okay. Because think of the times in the movie where someone tries to attack Tom Cruise. Right. He knows the future. Yes, he does. So he just dodges every every punch. He can't lose. He is an enemy that knows the future, and so he can't lose. Okay, so let me put it this way. Emily Blunt's assertion. Okay, fine, fine. No, no, that's a good way of putting it. I guess the way of point the response is is that Rita Vertasky is therefore a fa- a correct. An enemy that knows the future can't lose. Yes. It is even in the world of time travel, there is almost never a situation where the enemy actually does know the future, unless you're talking about a single consciousness. And in our world of international relations, either mimic or Tom Cruise. Right. And in our world of international <laughs> relations. To the extent that we can know the future through intelligence, it's a question of whether leaders actually believe the intelligence and never, ever underestimate the ability of an actor to refuse to believe what is manifestly true. Because, And furthermore, the smarter the person, often the more adept they are at rationalizing their disbelief. That is also true for conspiracy theories, by the yes, way. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. So that's all I'm saying. The smarter someone is, the harder it is to get them to change their mind, even if their belief system is based on incorrect or absurd premises. Or absurd. Yeah. Yeah. It's this just occurred to me. And I feel like the people who listen to this podcast know this, but I've been watching a lot of these like cult uh, documentaries about cults or about scams and stuff. And Mm -hmm. every once in a while, like there's a sort of idea. I I mean, my ex-husband used to always say I'd never fall for that. (laughs) <laughs> and i think one of the reasons people like these is that yeah i wouldn't fall fall for that i'd see right, right. through that but the yeah. truth is i think these things are fascinating because i might fall for that yes <laughs> we all say we would never fall for it until we there maybe there's one that we you know what it is it's not a conspiracy theory maybe there really are ufos out there, there or well, maybe indeed you know, maybe, you know, it turns out that there was a lab leak that causes COVID or what have you. It becomes There's really interesting that way. Some bearded guy in the sky controlling every move <laughs> of everyone who had a son who died and then lived again. Oh, I thought you were going to go the Scientology route, but the fair oh. enough. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so the Scientology one is true. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. So, Anna, I have a question. Mm-hmm. And you, you, we've had this conversation before, but I will ask it again. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan, it was poker night. Or maybe a bachelor party. But I wasn't quite up to wringing a critique of capitalism out of this movie. Like, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot. Like, the market doesn't really make an appearance. If it had been, like, a really interesting critique of the mm-hmm. military industrial complex like i thought it might have been for a second mm-hmm. there but it wasn't yeah. it was not the way that it, it has a critique of capitalism is of course as a metaphor for the way that capitalism forces us all into time loops oh well done in well which done. we repeatedly sacrifice our bodies and our labor only to wake up the next day and do it all over again <laughs> powerless to change the outcome <laughs> unless of course we're willing to organize well, well said, Anna. Well said. Thank you. I also, now that you mentioned the, the Adorno <laughs> piece of live, die, repeat, repeat, yeah. which is a terrible, terrible name for me. It's a horrible title. <laughs> By the way, it keeps on getting announced and then not getting made. So maybe there's hope, which is or, also kind Or of maybe funny. we're reliving the announcement again. Or and again maybe and again. it needs as many screenwriters as the first one. Yes. But of course, the other kind of metaphor in here is Adorno's idea that we just need the familiar in order to like keep going that we but 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 here the familiar is violent i like it i like my other metaphor better <laughs> good all right oh wait uh, wait ding. What, what, what's that what's that on it do you ah, really? it's the I, mimics it's oh my god the blood the blood the blood, the blood. Oh. Ah. have we had welcome this conversation to, welcome to space the nation no <laughs> <laughs> we both had the same idea yeah, there we go <laughs> 
Dan, this is the part of the show where we talk about the things we didn't get a chance to talk about before. Mm. Uh, what do you got? Not a ton, but a, a few small things. First, there is some wonderful moments of dialogue in this film. And I think my favorite... There ought to be, given the number of screenwriters Yes, all. yes. But my favorite is when, <laughs> after you know Rita and Carter do the entire exposition dump, Cage responds by saying, this is a terrific presentation, by the way. And I did, like, there's not a ton of specificity, but I love the idea of the ad guy saying, this is a terrific present." You know, like, yeah. it, was, it was just yeah. hysterical. And he, oh, sincere. He's just like, you yeah. s- wow, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> and then during the, the sort of quiet farmhouse scene, you know, Rita one point says to him, all right, 10 minutes and then I'm killing you, which was just always a nice line. I just want to salute Emily Blunt's trainer because... <laughs> There is, I, I mean this, like, you see a couple of shots of her, and she has clearly put in the work. And I think I remember reading stories at the time about the sort of, you know, physical training she had to do to, to be sufficiently buffed out for this role. And it was convincing. I wonder if she and John Krasinski, like, if he was getting in shape for Jack Ryan, and she's That's getting possible. in shape for this, yeah. they're, like, working out together. Yeah. I would like to think that they would alternate. Like, I, I would assume that, like, two actors that are simultaneously, like, having to eat only, like, chicken breasts. You're right. Yeah. And so forth. That would just be like, they would be the grumpiest fucking people on the planet. Especially they have kids, right? So yeah, exactly. you need one yeah. parent who is functional, like who wasn't right. surviving on like 800 calories a day. Exactly. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah. And then finally, I will say like, I, it wasn't exactly a critique of the military industrial complex, but like one of the things I did like about the film is that I think we're supposed to think the tech is actually clunky and kludgy. You know, like the, the suits that they're wearing don't work very well. And we see them breaking down multiple times. And, you know, like, yeah, we see them occasionally used well also. But, like, I didn't... I thought it was supposed to be... From my reading? Not great. Yes? I think that's somewhat accidental. Oh, really? Okay, well, it worked. It was yeah. a happy accident yeah. is the way I will put it. It is funny. I, I don't yes. think they meant it to, to be a critique of any kind, I think. Uh, I think they nice. just wanted it to look lived in because we all know that sci-fi has to look lived in now. That's so. true, yes. What do you got, Anna? So it's at the very beginning during... A good montage scene. Not as yeah. good as Reign of Fire, but <laughs> a good... Reign of Fire will always have the best opening montage. <laughs> the opening it. news montage. Let's call it, be specific. Mm-hmm. It has a news mm-hmm. montage. There is a point at which we see Cage doing the rounds on cable. Yeah. What they show is my friend Jake Tapper, his show, <laughs> and my friend Olivier Knox, very ah. clearly not sitting next to Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it that bad? Okay. It is the green screen. Like the green screen, you can't actually see the green. But, but it, you pretty much. You pretty yeah. much. And I was like, I would have seen, I totally, if if Olivier had ever sat next to Tom Cruise, I would know about it. Like, <laughs> probably Jake too. Although yeah. Jake might have, Jake is at a point in his career, he may have sat next to Tom Cruise at some point. I'm sure. Yeah. Olivier is now a head of politics, a chief political editor at Washington Post. But he's been around DC he's been around DC for a long time. He's a great guy. Mm-hmm. But also I know him well enough that <laughs> it would come up if he had there ever sat next to Tom Cruise. Yes. But I also want to break in to tell my story of being Oh, do tell. Doing a cameo as a talking <gasps> head Ooh. on cable news. Oh, when were you okay, so do tell. Have you ever heard of the movie Downsizing, Dan? This is the one with Matt Damon? Yep. Yes, yes, I've heard of it. I have not seen it. But. Dan, I am in the news montage. <gasps> you are? I am. I'm going to have to watch it now. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, out of the blue, um, apparently the director, Alexander Payne. Who I love. He's a- amazing. He actually, well, there's a story about kind of how he got in touch with me. Mm-hmm. But he personally <laughs> wanted me to be a talking head. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. That's flattering, Anna. And wow. so I got to fly to Montreal. Or Toronto, uh, Toronto, Toronto, yeah. which a lot of filming done up there, and including the expanse. Yeah. Get all gussied up. Ooh. and have full make. It was actually, unfortunately, it was the last day of filming, so oh. no one was there except for me and Roland Martin, who was the other talking head. Talking head right. um, for the scene. So, but it was fun. I, you know, costuming, wardrobe, makeup, and I. The gossip I can pass along yes. is that for some reason, I guess because we we're talking about Matt Damon, I said something about Ben Affleck and all the makeup ladies like simultaneously like sighed and rolled their eyes. And I was like, oh. what? He's, they're just like, oh, he's notorious because oh. of his back tattoo. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. 
He is notorious among Hollywood makeup people because every time he's in a movie that doesn't feature a back tattoo... It's got to be covered up. It's got to be completely covered up. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so it's an extra, like, they told me how long it takes, but it's hours to, like, cover it up. You know, I actually wondered about that because, like, they're occasionally, like, they're act like, The Rock. You you know, most of the time you see The Rock, he's got a clear tattoo and it's not covered up. And I kept wondering, are there, you know, actresses or actresses where the tattoos are covered up? There, this is one. Uh, And if you think about it, there are a lot of movies he's in where there's not a Phoenix tattoo on his back. That's a good point. Yes. They yeah. also went out of their way to say how great Matt Damon is. That oh, he okay, is charming point. and personable and respectful to everyone and remembers people's names and birthdays and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, good for him. Other thing that was funny is it was on a big lot in Toronto and everything looks the same. Like all the sound stages, they look like huge barns, right? Like, or if you've mm-hmm. ever seen the Warner Brothers intro where they do the wavy old timey yeah Yeah. yeah. it's all like that there's all these huge metal barns they all look exactly alike Mm -hmm. at one point like i had to go get something i don't remember but i had to leave Mm -hmm. the studio soundstage the soundstage soundstage and then i got lost coming back because you would get lost too Mm -hmm. right and i didn't realize i was lost (laughs) i thought i knew exactly where i was (laughs) and at one point I get to the soundstage, I open it up, and I boldly stride. Oh, no. And it was the set of The Expanse, Dan. <gasps> <laughs> I like how you brought that home, Anna. You brought that back to They were not currently world. filming. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I will, t- I will say, I kind of sort of I give myself some credit for the comedy i did purely for my own enjoyment at this moment which is that i <laughs> walked backwards like? out <laughs> <laughs> that's a good story and then what happened is i tweeted about it and the guys that write the expanse guys uh yeah. james and, and ty ty oh. got back to me and were like oh you should have said hi we're big fans da, 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 da. ty and daniel I yeah ty and daniel. ty and daniel yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's James S.A. Corey, who's not real. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that is my story. I will not give anything away about the actual news montage. Okay. Because there is, there's some comedy to it that. I'm looking forward to watching. Best it. not to explain. My the other yeah, funny thing about it is that I get mm-hmm. residuals. And also I am, I guess I'm not a member of SAG, mm-hmm. but I get a lot of mail and email <laughs> reminding me I can join SAG. but yeah i got a residual check for 12 dollars like just the other day when it came out the residual checks were not they were never huge but they were maybe more figures than two more figures than than two fair enough yes Yes. so that is my story and also i will say i don't think olivier and jake had the same experience because i i think they just pulled cnn footage yeah that's probably (laughs) what they did yeah That is a big piece of debris, but I'm glad I got that to tell That was a story. pretty large debris piece. It was like an asteroid. But, but worth it. But worth it. I yeah. want to reiterate the awesomeness of Bill Paxton, who does have a great line that's also kind of sus, which is, I'm not American, I'm from Kentucky, which <laughs> I'm like, uh, you know, funny line. Maybe don't want to know the full historical context about why he put it that way. Let's put it this way. It's less funny now, unfortunately. Yes. But yes. <laughs> but but he does. But it, it, again, credit to Bill Paxton. He sells it. And it's just it's so well done. Yes. And I was going to bring up some problems I had with the time travel piece. Mm-hmm. But you know what, Dan? I'm going to leave that to the discord because it's not go. actually fun, really. Yeah. To like pick mm-hmm. apart a time travel paradox. It's it, not. Because <laughs> they just, they, they exist. They're paradoxes, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like describing yeah. your dream to someone. <laughs> well, the way, let me put it this way. I think I would close by saying this. The thing about this movie is that it is less a sci-fi film than it is a war film. Yes. And that's the issue. The issue is the war stuff is actually quite good. Like the, the battles on the beaches are extremely well done. I have a debris yeah. field piece. Bing, 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 okay. bing, bing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dan... Yes. Their approach to that beach. Number one, why are they using infantry? We've talked about this before. Yeah. yeah. 
infantry probably pretty useless unless we'd gotten some hand wave about like why we have to fight them mano a mano. Actually, if you have to control territory, infantry does matter. This is uh, one of the things okay. that people are realizing in the war in Ukraine. But keep oh, going. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, yeah. I thought of you, and I thought, okay. is infantry the really the right, you know? More interesting is here. why they had to use the helicopter gunships, okay. which made it, yeah, yeah. Line dropping down. Yes. That's a recipe for disaster. That's like, it, it just, not only that, but like one of the other issues is that you see them drop. They've got a tether connected. That's what I'm saying. Line dropping down. To the down. helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and if like that copter is destroyed, they're all buying it. And like that was the part I yes. Right. Yes, you know yeah. what? Like it Normandy, it's a good idea. Get your get your ships up there and have people run down. Like that yeah. is the way to go. Right? right. Like it yep. is the first thing I thought of. It's like, this is really stupid invasion. <laughs> like <laughs> they are doing this in a way that, like, of course they're gonna lose. How dare you disgrace the memory of Operation Downfall like that? Um, just, I guess yeah. I'm, the other thing I thought is maybe they really want to telegraph like what a bad idea it is. <laughs> I think that's pretty much what they were I, I think that's kind of what they were going for. Yes, I agree. All right. So now that's all the debris. It is a war movie, although the war parts some of them are suspect. Some of the actual yes. war parts. Fair enough. Are suspect. Yes. What are we doing next, Dan? Next we are doing Strange New Worlds, and then I believe Station Eleven, and then after that, uh, Jurassic the original Park. Jurassic Park. Yeah, original Jurassic yeah. Park. I will remind you that if you aren't already a patron, please become a patron. We do this mainly for fun, and <laughs> because it started during the pandemic, and yeah. it has enabled us to, you know, both be friends with each other and make new friends right and it is worth doing no matter whether you're a patron or not but it does help us out tremendously if you can't become a patron i'm not gonna lie it makes us feel a little better to know there are more patrons so yeah yeah and we're so close to 250 dan that's true and when we get to 250 we will do another patrons only episode on a topic chosen by the patrons doesn't even have to be sci-fi yeah i was gonna we 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 were talking about this i'm gonna let everybody in the discord know if if you want to hear us talk about terms of endearment (laughs) <laughs> we will do it yes fair enough we will do it fair enough. flash dance i don't absolutely. know absolutely totally I- i'm just trying totally. to come up with movies that would not in any way like <laughs> you know scenes from a marriage uh, there you go. Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah. the color series like the color trilogy you know? oh there we go <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, red, white, and blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before sunrise, before sunset, before midnight. Yeah, we can we can do any of them. Okay, uh, well that's it for now. Until next time. Keep this channel open for more.